Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, back for another episode of Everything Compliance. The Everything Compliance gang is Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Mike Volkoff, founder and CEO of the Volkoff Law Group, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors. Gents, I have asked you all to think about a sort of Q4 wrap-up of the compliance year as we started uh, basically in November of 2016 with the election of uh, Donald Trump and moving forward, there were many questions about where compliance would go. So I've asked each of you to, to maybe give some of your thoughts on what, what you saw in Q4 and really the kind of wrap-up of the first year of the new uh, GOP administration. And Matt, what I really wanted to ask you is, is Jay Clayton who we thought he was? Is he someone different than we thought he was? And how has his elevation to the chair of the SEC changed or not changed the SEC's role in uh, enforcement uh, from your perspective? Yeah, you know, I have been giving this a lot of thought, Tom, and I think probably the the fairest, most honest answer is that for corporate ethics and compliance officers specifically, we don't really yet know what the true influence of Jay Clayton will be as head of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, for some other people who might be listening who are more into the world of corporate governance or corporate audit, uh, I can't necessarily say the same to them. There are already some have some groups out there who would probably be very unhappy with what Jay Clayton is doing compared to prior uh, chairman in the Obama administration. There are probably some who are quite pleased. It is possible that Jay Clayton might also take more action in 2018 that compliance officers could be affected by quite a bit. But you know, more than anything else, I think what has come about with Jay Clayton in the first year that he was uh, running the Securities Exchange Commission, first, remember, he had no government experience at all before he came in to run the commission. The only other SEC chairman in that type of predicament was the very first one, Joseph Kennedy, in 1934. Um, So I think a lot of what Clayton had to do in the first year was first just get up to speed on how does the commission work, really, when you're in it? What is it that he wants to do, and how could he try to uh, bring that about? While he was doing that, however, think about Uh, He took office in May of 2017. By August of 2017, we had news of that big cybersecurity breach at the SEC itself. Um, Also, what happened shortly after that towards uh, the later part of 2017 is the rise of these initial coin offerings and cryptocurrencies. And, well, what are these things? Are they securities? Are they not? What does an ICO fraud look like? What are investors' protections and liabilities and risks, and what about issuers of ICOs? We've never had those before. So suddenly, Jay Clayton has to worry about a new type of financial instrument exploding onto the public markets, um, probably not on his agenda one year before when he was thinking about, you know, hey, if I ever ran the SEC. Um, and then he had this really big scandal at the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which most of the leadership was going to be replaced anyways. That was going to take a lot of Jay Clayton's time and energy. And then we find out that 
there was an, basically a corruption leak that PCAOB staffers were leaking confidential material to an audit firm, KPMG, in exchange for getting jobs at KPMG as they were leaving the PCAOB. That is a big deal. That was a really big, serious scandal, and I think it shows that you know, there was at least one PCAOB member who could have stayed on into 2018, and he got cashiered with the rest of them. So, you know, one after the other after the other. Jay Clayton had a lot of things surprise him that I bet were not on his agenda when he started the job, and they've consumed a lot of his time. Also, he did take some actions that, frankly, kind of surprised me. Um, he did encourage and allow the new audit report format to go forward. Uh, that is going to reveal a lot more useful information, I think, in audit reports. There are a lot of companies that don't like that, and we're probably hoping he would kill it or repropose it, and we'd never see the light of day, but it has gone forward. Um, we have not yet seen Clayton backtracking on anything that really would affect uh, corporate compliance officers directly. So no changes yet to, say, the SEC whistleblower program, although that apparently is floating out there that it might be something the SEC might revisit later in 2018, presumably after the Supreme Court makes its big decision about whistleblower protections under the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, there are other ideas, such as maybe the companies looking to go public might be able to uh, get a charter past the SEC that would disallow investors from filing lawsuits. They would have to go to binding arbitration um, in cases of, I don't know, financial shenanigans or other sort of issues that shareholders often have with companies. And now the, this big blunt instrument to pound down SEC, uh, to pound down uh, shareholder lawsuits. There's a lot of things out there that could happen in 2018 that compliance officers might not like, but they haven't happened yet. On the other hand, if you are a corporate governance enthusiast, you don't like Jay Clayton at all right now. Uh, he has already taken some steps, such as um, companies can now file a confidential pre-IPO registration statement where the staff will kick the tires, they'll recommend some changes, you can go and you can change it, and then you forget to file a nice, bright, shiny registration statement for an IPO after you already cleaned up all the dirty stuff. The SEC staff said, that might be a problem, you might want to fix it. Um, corporate governance enthusiasts don't like that idea. Another big one that is already supposedly happening is that when shareholder activists submit a proposal that a company might not like and the company goes to the SEC seeking a no-action letter that you can ignore this proposal, keep it off the proxy statement, the SEC has now adopted a new policy that says they will follow the judgment of the board to say whether or not this proposal does intrude on ordinary business, whether or not this uh, is duplicative of another board proposal already, and basically you know, give the benefit of the doubt to the board. Now, again, good governance activists do not like that at all, but it's a policy. Then again, as soon as the policy came out and everybody was unhappy about it, uh, the SEC did not give a no-action letter to Apple over a shareholder activist resolution and kind of ran counter to what they just told companies they would be doing. Um, so there's still some conflicting signals there. I think we still need to remember, above all, what does Jay Clayton want to do? 
He wants to goose up the number of IPOs in this country, beginning and full stop. That's his objective, period. Um, now, the, as the number of IPOs did rise in 2017, but that was not saying much because 2016 really stunk for the IPO market. 2017 was not as good as 15 and 14, um, but it is kind of moving in the right direction. So might Jay Clayton start to move uh, to look more closely at SOX um, Section 404B compliance and internal control audits, and could we ease those up in theory so we could goose up the number of IPOs again? Yeah. Would that work? I don't think so. Would it affect corporate com- uh, audit and compliance professionals worried about SOX compliance? Could affect you in a big way. Yes. Um so there's still, like, you can't really give him a grade either way. And I wouldn't say an incomplete grade. I would say more like an inconclusive grade because it's been one thing after another that has pulled Jay Clayton's attention away from what he really wants. Uh, we could even say right now, I'm sure this stock market volatility we've seen for the last week, this does him no favors either to keep his eye on the ball that he wants to keep his eye on. Uh, but, hey, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. And I think that's really... That's the point with Jay Clayton after one year in. That's what I see. Uh, and what would? You, how's it going to affect corporate compliance officers in 2018? We, I don't know yet. We'll we'll see. Matt, are there any uh, upcoming announcements or anything that you could point us to, which may give us a uh, hint to filling in or flushing in the colors around the inconclusiveness? Uh, I think that we should definitely look at um, whether Jay Clayton will allow or somehow formalize what they're telegraphing, that they will allow IPO registrations to go forward where the company includes a clause with mandatory arbitration rather than lawsuits. That's a big deal. That, I'm sure, would get challenged in court. That would fly in the face of years and years and years of SEC precedent. The last time somebody even remotely claimed close to floating this idea in 2012, that got shot down hard. Um, So still, if he goes through with that idea, which Republicans would like to see, that would be a big thing. We should watch very closely how the Supreme Court uh, rules in this whistleblower protection case that it should rule on by June. And if it somehow upends the definition of what whistleblower protections are, I think the SEC would have to revisit the whistleblower protection guidelines and the whistleblower bounty program that uh, we might see that happen later in this year. Um, And then I would keep a close eye actually on the PCAOB and how it may or may not revisit SOX 404B compliance. I know a lot of companies think that 404B is nobody's idea of a good time. I know a lot of Republicans would like to repeal that. Congress is not going to repeal that, I don't think, because they can't get their act together to keep the government open. Uh, it's what I mean, it took them two tries to be able to do that, and they finally got it open now just at long last today. So, I mean, I don't see legislation affecting 404B, so who would affect it? Well, the SEC, by putting people in at the PCAOB, they could weaken, water down, simplify, alleviate, whatever verb you want to use. Uh, they could get to 404B that way. So you might want to watch what, 404, what uh, the PCAOB does around SOX 404B. Um, and then we'll, we'll see where things go. But, I mean, you know, people would think, oh, my God, whistleblowers are going to go away. Well, no, they haven't. 
The SEC has continued to dole out regular whistleblower awards. They had six since Jay Clayton has taken over. One of them was $16 million split between two people. That's not chump change. Um, Michael Piwawar, who's a very conservative Republican commissioner, uh, he came out last January and said that he still thinks that FCPA enforcement can include monetary penalties, at least on the SEC side, uh, because investors have been warned about it. Like, you know, um, I don't think a lot of this is necessarily going to be as big of a change as people might think, specifically for corporate compliance officers. Um, but we'll see. And like I said, there are a whole lot of others out there who will either not be pleased with what Jay Clayton or they will love Jay Clayton, depending on how they feel about Wall Street. But for our core audience here, we don't know yet. Jerry's still out. Jonathan, Mike, do you have any questions for Matt? Well, Matt, one, I, I think actually the arbitration um, provision would be incredible. I mean, talk about an earth earthquake. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, that ends class actions. That ends, you know, uh, and, and the trial bar in terms of their influence in Capitol Hill and in Washington is huge. And I just see that as, a, I mean, I can't see him being able to pull that off. He's going to, he may try though. He may, I mean, look, they shut down the C, the CPB, uh, you know, uh, whatever and requested a budget of zero. So, you know, from the consumer protection board. So maybe they will do something like this. Um, I, I, I would agree that, I mean, that would be an enormous shift. I can't imagine that the, pro-governance forces and the trial bar would let that go without a legal challenge for more than like a day. Um, and then I think that raises some interesting, uh, you know, corporate law and state law in Delaware court kind of issues about can they do this or not? Um, but we shall see. I, you know, the only thing I would pick up on is, you know, you, Mike, um, you rightly picked out that the CFPB really has gone the other way under director Mike Mulvaney. Um, right. I mean, Mike Mulvaney is a hardline conservative, and he knows what he wants to do with that agency. Jay Clayton is a reasonable guy. Um, he right. is a reasonable guy under a Trump administration, but he's not one of the right-wing kooks and crazies who are out there in some parts of Washington itching to do these gigantic dreams of conservative reformation of the regulatory world. Clayton's you know, somebody that you can sit down with, even if you disagree with him politically. So, Mike Volkov, you did what I thought was just a fascinating three-part podcast series where you looked at the Mueller investigation, and you looked at it uh, in a non-political way. You looked at it through a prosecutorial set of eyes, which, of course, you still have, and you looked at it with a tool that I had not focused on uh, for uh, thinking about how to investigate a crime, which was just a basic timeline. And I was wondering if, for your segment, you might sort of revisit the Mueller investigation uh, using the tools that uh, you utilized in your first set of podcasts, uh, where you see it's been, uh, key plea agreements, and where uh, it may be going down the line in 2018. Well, I think, uh, I mean, we have some big issues that have occurred, I think, recently uh, with regard to the, um, the Russia investigation. 
first being the, the dance that's going on with regard to Trump uh, testifying. Uh, and then the second is uh, sort of a, a, I sense sort of a revisiting of the issue, which may not be as resolved as I thought it was, which was, can a sitting president be indicted? And then I see the third issue uh, is sort of the shenanigans going on with the lawyers for uh, Manafort's co-defendant, Mr. Gates, uh, in terms of them trying to withdraw from the case and trying to figure out what's going on there. I have some thoughts on that. But aside from those three issues, what what I think the other more important sort of trend right now is when the Mueller investigation started, it was divided into two parts. There's a team that works on the obstruction of justice allegations, and then there's a team that works on the uh, sort of I know everybody calls it collusion, but um, to me, it's sort of the relationship between the Trump campaign and the um, and the Russians uh, and the Russian nationals that they met with or you know coordinated with in terms of getting assistance from uh, in the campaign. And um, and what's interesting to me is to try to question why uh, they're seeking Trump's testimony at this time, does that mean that, you know, they're only going to get one bite at the apple? Does that mean that they've closed off the Russian coordination part and just focusing on obstruction, or are they going to ask him about both sets of issues? So that's important to me. But what I, uh, what I tried to do in the, in the series was just to look at at the facts, as we say, and try to deal with the facts. And we are, you know, there are several sort of key ways to do that. One is uh, I, what I used to do as a prosecutor and when I do an internal investigation or anything like that is to always build a chronology and fill in dates as you nail down certain dates. And then uh, I find it to be a helpful way to sort of look at things. And, um, and to me, the real, I mean, we can go back into the Michael Flynn time period and go through those dates. Uh, but, you know, Flynn is supposedly cooperating. Uh, and I do think that uh, a lot of those issues are going to be, he's already discussed with them or acknowledged certain things. Um, there is a question in my mind as to, I thought the Flynn plea agreement, for example, was very interesting because some people wondered, why did he get such a sweetheart deal? Is it because he had such good uh, information to give the investigation? But, uh, you know, it was no, there was no question that it was a good deal, given the potential allegations against him beyond just making false statements during his FBI interview. So, um, but uh, the Flynn plea agreement, uh, you know, raises a lot of issues, but I thought what was kind of interesting was uh, sort of the time period in January of 2017 into February and into March leading up to uh, the dates when uh, Comey uh, was fired. Um, and when you look at those dates, it's really interesting to see how sort of this trended out. So, for example, let's start, if, if you want, look at the dates of when Flynn was actually interviewed in the White House by the FBI, which was 
January 24th, 2017, and he lied to the FBI during the interview. And I guess we know now that uh, nobody supposedly knew he was being interviewed by the FBI or that he lied at that point in time. Uh, he didn't report it, obviously, to anybody. But two days later, Sally Yates informed Don McGahn that Flynn was not truthful with uh, Vice President Pence and others based upon press reports concerning his conversations with the uh, Russian ambassador. And at that point, McGahn supposedly briefed Trump and other senior officials about the information provided by Yates. That's January 26th. And that turns out to be kind of important because uh, McGahn the next day asked Yates to come back and he asked her questions about why did it matter to the Justice Department if Flynn lied, what criminal statutes did he violate, Flynn supposedly, um, and would taking action against Flynn immediately interfere with the FBI investigation. And McGahn supposedly asked to see the underlying evidence collected in Flynn's interview. So uh, Yates told him supposedly that Flynn was compromised and susceptible to extortion, and although she can't tell the White House how to handle it, it was a serious matter. So uh, McGahn was supposed to go over that weekend to the Justice Department to a secure uh, skiff, they're called skiff location, and look at the uh, evidence. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we don't know if that occurred or we don't uh, whether he did or whether he didn't. But notice the date. That date is January 27th. That's the same date that Trump invited Comey to the White House for the one-on-one -on -one loyalty dinner and asked Comey if he wanted to stay on as the FBI director. Well, how did that happen? And what did, what did Trump know? Why did he reach out to Comey on the same day that McGahn is hearing about this FBI investigation and wants to go look at the evidence? Three days later is when Yates invited McGahn, I'm sorry, to the FBI to review the evidence. But Trump fired Yates for failing to enforce the travel ban from the Justice Department. And, that, and it's unclear if McGahn actually did go look at the evidence. So then on uh, February 10th, Trump tells reporters on Air Force One that he's going to look into reports concerning Flynn misleading administration officials about his contacts with Kislyak. And he says, I don't know about that. I haven't seen it, in quotes. There's no way that's a truthful remark on February 10th when you consider that Trump invited Comey to the White House the same day he's finding out about this FBI investigation and asking for loyalty. That's what I think uh, Mueller is really focused on in terms of that. Um, and then I would say that what, what comes up later is Trump calls Comey even one time in March just to chit-chat, okay, literally just to chit-chat. But on February 14th, two weeks before that, Trump, that's the famous time when Trump asked Comey to stay behind at the end of the Oval Office meeting for the private discussion. This was the day after Flynn had resigned. And he said to, to Comey, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. He's a good guy. I hope you can let this go. And that also coincides with Trump's attempts in March 
22nd to have senior intelligence officials to lobby Comey to back off the Russia investigation. And then on the March 30th, Trump calls Comey and asks him to lift the cloud of investigation on him. And I'm not going to go through all the, the facts, except I do like the April 25th, 2017, Trump texted Flynn with a message, stay strong. And I know from prosecution of gangs and prosecution of criminals that words like that, when somebody's under investigation or charged, we would normally obviously introduce it to establish a conspiracy, but also uh, allege that as ways to interfere with the criminal prosecution and obstruct justice. So, um, I mean, all of these sort of rang, rang true with, with me. Then on May 3rd, Comey testifies before the Senate Judiciary Committee, confirms the Russia investigation, and then over the famous weekend, uh, the rainy weekend, when Trump then decides to fire Comey, and he fires Comey the next week. Um, and I'm not going to go through his post-firing statements, because everybody knows those about what he said to the Russians, and then what he said to Lester Holt. But to me, these are the facts that I'm, sh and I'm going to tell you, my prediction is we, there's so much more evidence to fill this in, in terms of documents, in terms of other people, McGahn and others in the White House to fill all of this in, let alone getting to, uh, you know, the famous press release that he supposedly uh, was, was involved in. But these are important issues to me, and it's really interesting to, you know, I like hearing all the pundits on TV talk about this, and they put on former prosecutors. And the guy I like is actually on MSNBC, Ackerman, who basically was a Watergate prosecutor. And he has described the potential conspiracy here very easily. And the obstruction of justice, he says, is a lay-down case. And, um, and I sort of subscribe to a lot of what he says. Now, I'm not looking at this through political angles and how they may be able to subvert this politically, but at least from a factual standpoint, it raises a lot of, a lot of questions in my mind in terms of what's going on. But anyways, those are, those are my thoughts. And I, I actually think that that's, that will continue for this year to be the biggest issue in terms of criminal justice and enforcement. Uh, I think it's going to get more interesting rather than less interesting. And I think the fact that Mueller's quiet right now and has been for a while, uh, you know, we have no idea what other deals he may be trying to work out or what investigation uh, steps are being taken. Uh, but knowing him that I know him quite well and I know a lot of the prosecutors, uh, these are people who are going to look under every stone and dot every I and cross every T because they know they have to. So... But those are my thoughts. Uh, that may have been a little long, and I apologize for that, but I just sort of wanted to put the context out there for everybody. Mike, let me just start off uh, with some questions on the three points that you started with. Trump testifying, can a president be indicted, and then the actions by uh, Defendant Gates, uh, I guess now former lawyers, in their noisy withdrawal. Uh, what do you see on those three points? Well, Trump testifying, uh, I think he, he, he will have to testify, and he will eventually. Um, if they want to have him, uh, Mueller will, 
will ultimately, if he has to, but he will threaten giving him a subpoena. And um, Trump will definitely testify. They're just fighting over the ground rules. They're going to try to limit the time. They're going to, you know, what you won't see is the way Bill Clinton was interviewed on videotape without lawyers. Um, in And I don't think that these lawyers will allow Trump to be in there on his own, even though he wants to be. Trump supposedly says he can, you know, handle it. Um, and I don't think they know how dangerous it would be for him to talk. And they know that how many inconsistent uh, statements that exist out there right now and how many statements that Trump would have difficulty uh, dealing with. So they're trying, it's a strategy to basically try to limit um, his uh, his being called as a witness. Because he clearly is, a, a, he's clearly a subject of the investigation. And a subject means a person whose um, conduct is invest in, under investigation. Um, and the other thing that is interesting to me is, uh, obviously he can't take the fifth because politically that just would not fly. So he's got, he's going to testify. The question is how much time Mueller will not do the questioning. He will have somebody like, uh, Weissman or two, two or three people who do the, uh, questioning. Um, he will not uh, do it himself. He'll be present for it. And that's about it. Um, on the indictment of a president, there's an OLC, Office of Legal Counsel, opinion that was reached in the Watergate era, which uh, concluded that a president could not be, sitting president, could not be uh, indicted. Uh, people who are familiar with that opinion have said that they're really, it's not as persuasive as everybody thinks and uh, thinks that the issue could be revisited. Do I see Rosenstein doing that? No. Uh, Mueller's people, uh, I could see them looking at it, uh, and they have uh, enlisted probably the best legal mind, a guy by the name of Michael Dreben, who is from the solicitor's office and handles almost all the important criminal appeals. And if necessary, I think uh, if they want to look at that, uh, he would have to be involved. But it would be a big issue. Um, but there's more sort of people clamoring. I just saw Eric Holder on TV clamoring for, in his view, he said that a president can be indicted. He had read the OLC opinion and doesn't find it persuasive. And he thought that there was some real gaps in the analysis. So that's an interesting issue. And I think we should keep monitoring that. Uh, Gates's lawyers withdrawal is interesting, uh, because coming in as a guy I know, uh, Tom Green, who is a very well-known white-collar defense lawyer. And uh, I think that Green, I, I don't know what the, well, we know from the lawyers filing the, with the court, and they had a hearing under seal, that there are supposedly irreconcilable differences. And I don't know what those may be. It may be that his team is saying, you can't beat this case you better choose to cooperate, and he doesn't want to do that. Um, I think there may be just be a trust issue among the lawyers and uh, Gates, and he just doesn't feel like he has the right lawyers. Um, I think Green is a guy who would probably um, push him to cooperate and get him. So I think Green coming in will be good for the government. 
because I think he'll get Gates to uh, to flip. Um, and I think Gates could be an important witness, particularly on campaign activities. Um, and Manafort, I think, will just never flip until he gets convicted. And Manafort, uh, frankly, I think he, his life may be in jeopardy if he cooperates, and I think uh, uh, he'd have to be protected and other things like that. But uh, So that's where I sort of see the, the Gates-Manafort I, I think the Gates-Manafort case is a very, very strong case. And uh, frankly, they're going to get convicted. And you can well imagine in front of a D.C. jury having these two, you know, Republicans with blowing through millions and millions of dollars. I can tell you from experience, D.C. jurors hate people like that. They just have a, a real rough reaction to them. So they'll get convicted, and uh, and they'll look at serious time. This judge will give them time. So I think they'll, they'll try to flip at some point. I see Gates flipping before the trial and Manafort after the trial. Matt, Jonathan, anyways, any questions? Sort of a, yeah. Hey, Mike, this is Matt here. Let me ask a question that's been on my mind. I'm wondering if there is just a shorter, simpler path to constitutional crisis. Um, is it possible that Mueller could wind up investigating uh, money laundering from the Trump organization before Trump really was colluding with Russia or not or running for president or not? But if he finds evidence of money laundering at the Trump organization, uh, could that then become something that Trump faces problems with? And possibly even Mueller just gives that whole case over to maybe Eric Schneiderman, the state attorney general of New York, says, do you want to indict? Have at it. Or even crazier, Donald Trump's, the Trump Organization's bank is Deutsche Bank. If there was money laundering, could possibly that evidence be handed over to Berlin, which would have no obstacle to indicting a foreign leader if it wanted to do so. Um, but, you know, that would be, that's a crime, totally separate from the collusion and whatnot. So it, would that be something that Mueller could investigate if he stumbled into it, which I would bet my house that he stumbled into that. But that's what's on my mind. I yeah, I think he's already stumbled into it, to be honest with you. The fact that uh, it doesn't take much to, you know, when you're, when you subpoena the uh, Deutsche Bank and get the records, uh, and you've got some really strong money. And, and Andrew Weissman is not a money laundering investigator. There's a, a woman on the staff who is. And, mm-hmm. and she, trust me, she will, she, this is not a hard case either, uh, in terms of, the money laundering of the Trump organization. Now, Mueller can't, you know, he's going to be careful in terms of his scope of authority because he would have to expand his scope to include that. And Rosenstein, who's, you know, on the sort of hit list right now, is not going to be willing to take chances on that. Could it get referred over to somebody else? I don't know. Uh, within the Justice Department, I would see there would be some issues with that if you sent it to the money laundering section or to the U.S. Attorney's Office. The Schneiderman uh, idea is, frankly, I think the most realistic in that in that sense. I don't think they would send it to Germany, but they'd certainly give it to Schneiderman. And, who could uh, indict a sitting president as a state attorney general, right? There's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I don't think you run into that issue. I don't think they'll give it to the foreigners, but you know, it depends. Uh, but whatever happens with that, I think will happen at the end. In other words, at, when they're when they're uh, done, and you know what 
what's going to happen here is that by the end of 2018, they're going to give a report. Let's say they, they conclude they can't indict Trump. They're going to give a report to Rosenstein and say this should go to Congress, to the House uh, Judiciary Committee, and referred to them. And it'll be, you know, kind of like the Ken Starr report with all the evidence, all the, you know, analysis and everything that they found, and it'll go up there. Um, I think at that point is when you'll see them make referrals of other information that they may have uh, uncovered. And uh, that will be the interesting issue. But, you know, there's a long way to go in this, and we don't know what will happen by that time in terms of, you know, Rosenstein and who's there and who's not and how the uh, oversight of Mueller is going. I mean, I think, frankly, Mueller could make an argument. I mean, if you look at the Whitewater investigation, look how that happened. I mean, expanded. You want to talk about expanding scope, but that was uh, when they had, you know, the three-judge panel at that point in time. Um, So I I don't think that's likely to happen given the politics, but at the end, I, I... I think you raise a really good issue. All right, and remember, and remember, uh, Matt. Steve Bannon said it's all about money laundering. So, yes, this and I. All right, this is my last point on it. When yes. news leaked that they had subpoenaed the Deutsche Bank records, that's when Donald Trump went really nuts on Twitter for a while, talking about firing Mueller or Rosenstein or who knows who and all the conspiracy. Like that was the trigger. And yeah, I right. Keep coming back to that. Yes. Yeah, good point, good point. So, we'll see. So thanks, It'll Mike. Be an interesting year, that's for sure, on that. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, Jonathan Armstrong, the question I asked, uh, wanted to ask you was, of course, sitting uh, across the pond in England, uh, where you largely um, office and live now, although I understand you've become quite the world traveler. Nevertheless, <laughs> uh, in the past... Uh, certainly Q4, but really over the past year, from your perspective, uh, has anything really changed for the compliance practitioner under the new uh, GOP administration? Has it been a year of um, consolidation, clarification, or uh, something different? Well, so what's your perspective on where we are in now, uh, February 2018? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Tom, I've listened to, to all of this with with real fascination, and and I guess I have to say that 2017, from my perspective, in, in some respects, was refreshingly dull in terms of uh, yeah, the the transatlantic bit. I think, um, as as you say, I I have a sort of um, you know travel quite a lot, and I had I have a sort of almost annual trip to the U.S. and I was reflecting that my 2017 trip uh, was the Women's March, and it was the first week of the of the Trump presidency. And it, you know, every day that week something different happened, and there were all sorts of worries in terms of transatlantic um, compliance. And I have to say that largely. Against that background, nothing much has happened. You know, we talked about, for example, would prosecutors in the EU try and bypass a a uh, a, a Trump administration because they wouldn't really know what their attitude was to bribery? 
Of course, we know that Rolls-Royce rushed to do their, um, their deal with the outgoing administration, in part because of the uncertainties of the incoming uh, investigation. So they wanted their DPA done and dusted uh, b before the, the regime change. But in terms of um, FCPA and bribery, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's made that much difference on the uh, on the international front, and you know we've had discussions over the last year or so why why that might be the case. We of course had worries about Privacy Shield, um, and there was the uh, annual review of Privacy Shield. It was annual, but not annual because it was postponed. But largely, nothing happened there either. I think the Trump administration would have had to be much worse for something dramatic to happen with the commission. But I guess they didn't annoy enough people in other areas like regulators or people in European Parliament. There's obviously been some criticism of some of the things that the administration have done, but they've not proved fatal to Privacy Shield. Of course, we're expecting some more litigation over standard contractual clauses, the way of transferring data between, um, between Europe and the US that most corporations use. Uh, and that case obviously was going to be dictated in some respects by the Trump administration's attitude to things like surveillance. But we had those hearings in the spring in Ireland. The case got referred as predicted to the ECJ. It's not been heard yet. It probably won't be heard maybe for another year or so. So again, that would be in my category of nothing much has happened. And I guess the other big area that a lot of people were worried about was areas like immigration. So that first week when I was in the U.S., you'll remember that airports were sealed off practically uh, New York taxi drivers had had, had uh, driven a ring around them in part to process uh, to uh, protest about the travel ban and and uh, detention at airports, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But again, almost nothing much happened on that either. I think that anecdotally, at least, I can tell you that acting for a lot of technology businesses who are US-owned but have significant presences in London. I, I know that some of the moved headcount increases that were planned for the US, they moved those headcount increases to the, uh, to the UK. So, for example, those corporations that rely on a lot of uh, Indian-born developers, some of those development teams were located in the UK rather than in the US. I'm not sure whether that's unraveled itself and whether those guys that were hired for California positions are now in California rather than in a holding pattern in, in London. But again, my sense is that not, not too much happened there either. So, as I say, I know it sounds, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make for a great podcast topic in some respects, Tom, but um, I, I, I think the the fireworks proved to be um, a guy with colored matches rather than the
sound and light display that we thought we were going to get. So, Jonathan, the year uh, passed really led to, or as, as you've articulated, was refreshingly, refreshingly dull. Has that enabled your clients and the compliance practitioners that you've worked with and those you interact with in the United Kingdom to really think about how they can move their compliance programs forward if they're not worried about uh, a dramatic change in either the regulatory or enforcement landscape? I, I think the honest answer is that almost every compliance professional I speak to is focused on GDPR instead. Um, so they're looking, you know, obviously, we're whatever we are, just over 100 days away from go live. My sense is that uh, the, the second week in January was the, the week that most people thought, uh, this is now imminent and I have to do something about it. So certainly from my perception, most compliance professionals are, are, um, are you know, almost wholly focused on, on, on GDPR. I, I was with a client yesterday, for example, where they pulled, whatever, 35 people uh, from all over the organization, you know, from North America, from across Europe, and, and that was their focus. And, and the, the leaders of that team have said, this will remain our focus now until May, absent, of course, you know, bribery or corruption getting in the way. So, unfortunately, I don't think that is the case, Tom. I don't think many people, from my experience, are using that time of peace for strategic planning. They've just moved to concentrating on spinning a different plate. And the uh, certainly GDPR has been on the forefront of your mind and uh, many others, both uh, in the United Kingdom, in the e- European Union, and here in the United States. But uh, to the larger issue of EU regulation, uh, one of the things that I think many people were concerned about that you touched on was whether other regulators would step in uh, to either uh, sidestep a Trump administration or... Uh, if there was a vacuum in regulatory enforcement to uh, to step in and take those that the, the place of a United States led anti corruption and a bribery enforcement regime, um, do you see any evidence of uh, regulatory regulators from other countries uh, having to step in, or do you see from where once again from your perspective that U.S. regulators have really just moved forward uh, in a in a standard way? I think there are small pieces of evidence um, that maybe aren't a complete story, but at, but at least would be, I don't know, ripples on the pond that might suggest some sort of movement. Uh, to give you just one, for example, the SFO has an ad on the front page of its website now uh, asking for uh, or trying to recruit two principal investigative lawyers to work on oil and gas cases. So uh, that would suggest to me that they, uh, you know, whilst ever they're not, I don't think they're permanent positions from memory, but that would suggest that there's enough of a workload in that area to be recruiting people at a fairly senior level with a sector specialism. That obviously suggests to me that, 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 that there's quite a lot going on in oil and gas. 
that the SFO are interested in um, to, to dedicate resource to that. So that might be a sign. You know, we've had the unraveling of all the Bonnie Island investigations, which were principally U.S.-led, where the U.S. basically led on investigation into, into oil and gas. Is this a sign that the SFO are trying to fill some of that vacuum? I don't know. It could possibly be, you know, I don't know what the U.S. equivalent is, but in, in the... In the UK, we look out for snowdrops, and that tells us that probably spring is coming, and uh, and, and these might be the the snowdrops of transnational bribery enforcement. But who knows? Matt, Michael, any questions for uh, Jonathan? None for me. Well, I have one quick question, Jonathan, because I. Uh I see people sort of uh, struggling to catch up on the GDPR, and uh, I have to say that, um, that I mean, it seems like a, a huge mountain to climb, and people are just getting started, you know, two to three months in advance. And is it, I mean, can they make it, you think, in time, or is it just impossible to do something within that short time period? I think that's a very fair read, Mike. I mean, I've had, as Tom alluded to, a couple of weeks uh, this year in um, in the U.S. And, and and I think you're right. I think January has been the awakening for many corporations. Of course, it's too late. I think they need to get a program in place quickly. From our perspective, that means that you've got to be really focused on what you can achieve. You know, those 100 days include... Um, you know, depending on your religious persuasion, a religious holiday. And actually, they include Saturdays and Sundays as well. So the usable days for most corporations are probably down to about 60 already. And so you've got to design a program that will that will get you somewhere in 60 days. And that's probably going to be heavily focused on data breach. Uh, it's probably going to be heavily focused on subject access require, uh, requests. And if you're doing things like internal investigations or external investigations or you're involved in e-discovery, then obviously we know that they are hot issues and you're going to need to think those things through. And that might not be something that you can do on a policy basis. That might have to be something you're having to do on a case-by-case basis. And a lot of the work that we're doing at the moment is around data protection impact assessments. So looking at what a corporation is doing. I've had three days out of the UK, for example, with one client going through that process for some of what they do. That's always really helpful. It's always a really good way of assessing risk. But definitely, I don't think any corporation that starts now has a hope at all of being ready by 25th of May. So they're going to have to do a risk analysis and work out where the highest risks are and address them. Jay Rosen, I've been wondering what you thought about the most significant FCPA event or perhaps events which uh, really have transpired not in the last year, but during the the first year of the new administration. Anything that uh, you have seen that uh, is significant within the context of that time frame, but perhaps even uh, significance going uh, forward into the future? Sure, Tom. Uh, my most uh, significant FCPA or anti-corruption development 
uh, from the past year was the permanent adoption of the FCPA pilot program, and more importantly, its inclusion in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act 1977 section of the U.S. Attorney's Manual. Um, in the past five years, we have seen the Department of Justice continually chip away at mar any marketplace confusion and expectations associated with FCPA enforcement, and to provide better insight into what type of penalties a company may expect if they make, or more importantly, do not make a self-disclosure. My takeaways are that the FCPA corporate enforcement policy achieves many of its goals in clarifying the guidelines of how DOJ will deal with bribery self-disclosures. The incentives that have been offered include for a voluntary self-disclosure, uh, we start off with a declination of all charges, then up to a 50% reduction off the low end of the U.S. sentencing guidelines fine range. And generally, these type of agreements will not require the appointment of a monitor if a company has, at the time of resolution, implemented an effective compliance program. Finally, the company is required to pay all disgorgements, forfeiture, and restitution uh, fees and fines resulting from the misconduct at issue. If you have limited credit for full cooperation and a timely and appropriate remediation in FCPA matters, but you do not voluntarily disclose, the company will receive or the department will recommend to a sentencing court up to 25% reduction on the low end of the fine range. Unfortunately, this new policy is not a prophylactic for corruption and or alleged bribery, but it strengthens the weight and incentives given to creating meaningful ethics and compliance programs, as well as provides additional data points for the internal calculus that companies and outside counsel must weigh in while deciding whether or not to self-disclose. Now I'd like to recap some DOJ spec, uh, text speeches and outside council opinions that have led us to this point. First, I'd like to take a look at the FCPA guide, which was released in November of 2012. Its official title was a resource guide to the US Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And it was a work of the Department of the Justice and Security and Exchange Commissions this detailed compilation of information was about the FCPA, its provisions, and enforcement. Uh, the slim 120-page guide provided a detailed analysis of the FCPA and closely examined the SEC and DOJ's approach to FCPA enforcement. The guide provides helpful information to enterprises of all sizes from small business doing first transactions abroad to multinational corporations with subsidiaries around the world. The guide addresses a wide variety of topics, including who and what is covered by the FCPA's anti-bribery accounting provisions, the definition of a, quote, foreign official, unquote, and what constitute proper and improper gifts, travel, and expenses. Uh, we also look at facilitating payments, how successor liability applies in the M&A in context, the hallmarks of an effective compliance program, which you often speak about, and different types of civil and criminal resolutions available in the FCPA context. The guide takes a multifaceted approach towards setting forth what the statute's requirements and providing insight into the SEC and the DOJ's enforcement practices. 
Importantly, at the time, it used, uh, used hypothetical examples of enforcement actions and matters that the SEC and DOJ have declined to pursue, as well as summaries of applicable case law in the DOJ opinion releases. With the FCPA guidance, Assistant Attorney General at the time, Lanny A. Brewer, said, the fight against corruption is a law enforcement priority for the United States. Our FCPA enforcement is critical, protecting the integrity of markets for Americans doing business abroad. And we will continue to make clear that bribing foreign officials is not an acceptable shortcut. The guide is an important illustration of our transparency and a useful reference for companies and individuals who wish to act responsibly and in compliance with the law. If this sounds kind of familiar, this is the same type of language that Attorney General Jeff Sessions used last year at the um, ECI conference in his first public statements on whether or not the Trump administration would support enforcement of the FCPA. Now I'll fast forward to April 5th of 2016 as the DOJ Criminal Division launched the new, at the time, FCPA pilot program which provides guidance to prosecutors for corporate resolutions in FCPA cases, and which was designed to motivate companies to voluntarily self-disclose FCP-related misconduct. At the release of the program, Assistant Attorney General Leslie Caldwell of the Justice Department Criminal Division said, one of her priorities in the Criminal Division has been to ensure that we have a robust and transparent, that word comes up again, enforcement program targeting violations of the FCPA. Bribery of foreign officials harms those who play by the rules, siphons away money in, from communities and undermines the law. She continued, transparency in corporate FCPA charging decisions is important for several reasons. First, transparency enables the public to understand why particular results are achieved, are achieved or reached in particular FCPA cases and helps to reduce any perception that enforcement decisions may be unreasoned or inconsistent. Second, transparency informs companies what conduct will result and what penalties and what sort of credit they can hope to receive for self-disclosure. If a company opts not to self-disclose, it should do so understanding that in any eventual investigation, the decision will result in a significantly different outcome than if the company had voluntarily disclosed. The pilot program describes what is meant by voluntary disclosure, full cooperation, and remediation. It also explains the credit available to companies that, in fact, voluntarily self-disclose. The pilot program builds on the September 9th, 2015 Individual Accountability Memorandum, which was issued by Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates and was known as the Yates Memo. This guidance provides that if a company chooses not to voluntarily disclose its FCPA misconduct, it may receive limited credit if fully if it later fully cooperates and timely appropriately remediates, but any such credit will be markedly less than what was afforded to companies that do disclose wrongdoing. We'll fast forward now to, uh, to February of 2017, when our colleague Matt Kelly from Radical Compliance discovered the quote, evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which had magically appeared on the DOJ website. 
That guidance is an 11-part checklist that walks companies through 46 questions that prosecutors will typically ask about a client's program. The 46 questions are grouped into 11 categories, and those categories range from remediation of underlying misconduct to the role of senior and middle management to the autonomy of compliance function to training to risk assessment and more. Compliance officers can use this guidance to inform the program they want to build. The evaluation covers specific tangible points programs management and function that a corporate compliance officer can understand. Being able to answer all these questions certainly won't hurt a company if they need to appear in front of the DOJ. Now we'll take a look at evaluating FCPA program trends, the data, and what we typically like to call scoreboard. And I'd like to give kudos again to all my Eagles fans in Philadelphia because they've got the scoreboard from the Super Bowl. We're going to borrow this, uh, these insights from Ro Ropes and Gray's Ryan Rolfson and Sarah Kimmer. There, in their article, they discuss patterns and key takeaways. The DOJ resolved 18 FCPA matters over the last 12 months, a significant increase to the seven resolutions from the prior 12-month period. While the pilot program continued into its second year, its future was by no means set in stone. Instead, the DOJ would continue to evaluate the pilot program's utility and efficacy to determine whether or not to extend it and what revisions, if any, should be made. Now we'll go to this past November, where Rod Rosenstein gave remarks to the 34th International Conference on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. He announced that the FCPA corporate enforcement policy would be made a permanent program and would enable the DOJ to efficiently identify and, public and punish uh, criminal conduct, and it will provide guidance and greater certainty for companies struggling with questions of whether to make the voluntary disclosures of wrongdoing. The, de the Deputy Attorney General noted that previous corporate fraud policies often were identified by the name of the Deputy Attorney General who wrote the menu, uh, wrote the memo. Sorry, It is nice to be remembered, but one of my goals is not to be remembered for writing a memo. He continued, after spending nearly three decades trying to keep track of prolix memos, I want the department to issue concise policy statements. Historical background and commentary should go in a cover memo or a press release, but in most instances, the substance of a policy should be in the United States Attorney Manual, and it should be readily understood and easily applied by busy prosecutors. To qualify for the FCP, corporate enforcement policy, a company is required to pay all disgorgement, forfeiture, and resolutions resulting from misconducted issue. The new policy as also provides for limited credit for full cooperation and timely and appropriate remediation. If a company did not voluntarily disclose its misconduct to the DOJ, but later fully co cooperated in a timely and appropriate manner, as we said earlier, they will recommend a sentencing court to give up to a 25% reduction on the low end of the USSG fine range. Now, the DOG make, DOJ makes permanent its program to incentivize self-disclosure in FCPA. Let's close with a takeaway from Holland and Knight's Timothy Belovitz, who said, while the decision whether to disclose and cooperate may not be easy, 
This now permanent policy at least serves to help clarify what is expected and how compliance with the requirements will affect the ultimate resolution of the matter. It will help companies faced with FCPA issues and their counsel make a more informed decision about whether to pick up the phone or sit tight and hope the government never notices. So in retrospect, from my opinion, making the corporate enforcement policy uh, no longer a pilot program, but making it part of the approach that the United States government takes to FCPA adds a lot more clarity and surety to the business community and gives them some more insight and transparency and how they should proceed if they have any uh, issues within the company that may need to be self-disclosed. Does anyone have any questions for Jay? Well, Jay, I've got, got a couple of questions. Um, I guess, first of all, on a very macro level, um, it's, I found it interesting you selected a policy initiative as your most significant event. Kind of any thoughts as to um, where you might see the Department of Justice going in terms of more aggressive enforcement, more collaborative work with companies just to help stop bribery and corruption? through the uh, new enforcement policy or perhaps something else? Uh, I think that's a great question, Tom. Um, I'll, I'll kind of look at it a couple different ways. Um, already we are a couple months into the year and we are seeing either um, recidivist cases being reopened against some medical um, pharmaceutical companies. And we're also seeing this continued sharing of information. So I think... Um, while I chose a policy decision, I think it really reinforces the bedrock on how these things and these matters are going to continue going forward. So I think the trend is, is that uh, like we've seen on Petrobras and Odebrecht and many of these global matters, that there will be continued uh, cooperation among the regulators. And I think from a company perspective, Everything that has been passed and has led up to this point really, uh, you know, explains to a company what they need to do at the very least to move forward, whether it's from um, a compliance program, whether it's from a reporting perspective. But I think all these factors taken together will lead to um, more increased uh, enforcement in the coming year. And I think the other trend that we're seeing is that there are a lot of individual enforcements that are happening as well. Matt Kelly, do you have a rant or at least a riff for us today? You know, I, Tom, I do have something to say. It is not a rant. It is actually a piece of probably good news that the compliance community should be rooting for. Um, of course, for all the talk about Donald Trump and the Securities Exchange Commission and everything else, the single biggest story for corporate compliance officers in 2018 will be whether or not the FX network green lights a TV comedy about compliance officers. Uh, those of you who have been following my blog know I have been watching this story like a hawk. And uh, here's what we know so far is that FX has approved a pilot for a 30-minute sitcom called Compliance uh, that is going to feature a government compliance monitor. Will this be 
approved for a full season? We don't know. Will we ever even get to see the pilot? We don't know. What do we know? is that already the two lead actors have been named, and these are big-time actors. Uh, this is going to feature uh, the compliance officer will be Mary Louise Parker. Some of you might remember that she is on that show Weeds, which I have not watched, but she is a very accomplished actress. And she is going to be at a private equity firm that is apparently going to be owned by um, a character who the actor playing him will be Courtney Vance. And Courtney Vance played Johnny Cochran in that American crime story, uh, O.J. Simpson story that came out last year. Um, I also happen to have inside intel on roughly what the the plot will be for this pilot. It is going to be that the compliance officer is so good at her job, she has exasperated every banking firm in Wall Street, and nobody will hire her, and therefore the government assigns her to be a compliance monitor to this private equity firm, and then comedy ensues. Um, like I said, I have no idea if we're ever going to get to watch it, but I do know that they are moving forward with a very serious treatment of the pilot. These are big-time producers behind it, big-time actors doing it, so we can all keep our fingers crossed that maybe, finally, corporate compliance will get its public credit and turn under the sun, where everybody realizes just how bizarre and strange and funny this profession really is. So let's hope we get to see that sometime this year or 2019. Let's uh, hope it has a longer shelf life than the paper chase did on television. Jonathan Armstrong, you've been uh, traveling and I think you're going to have us a travel related rant. Yeah, it is a travel related rant. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to have, uh, you know, (laughs) the the ramblings of somebody who's been away from home for too long. But Hudson News, I'm sure Hudson News are very fine people. Um, I uh, once sat on a plane next to Kate Hudson. She was pleasant. I don't know whether she's connected with them. But it seems that every airport I go in at the moment has a Hudson News store. I saw on the Internet that they're now present in 87 airports. And they basically seem to dominate the market for stuff that you might need to take on the plane with you. I'm not referring to uh, baseball caps, but little things like, uh, to give you one example, Tom, highlighter pens. If your highlighter pen runs out of ink, uh, I don't know whether you're the same as I do, but my sort of seven or eight hours on a plane across the Atlantic is almost the only time I get to sit and read documents that aren't sensitive, but require some strategic thinking and maybe it's just a compliance person thing maybe it's just a lawyer thing but i need a highlighter pen to look at that sort of stuff and um and hudson news seem to have a policy decision of not selling highlighter pens and yet the only stationary outlet unless i want a montblanc highlighter pen is, is is them in the airport so i guess it's a rant slash also a plea and also uh, a shout out to Singapore Airlines because when I mentioned this once to a stewardess to say, did she know another outlet at an airport? A very kind uh, Singapore Airlines stewardess uh, sympathized with me, then came back with her own pencil case and said I was to help myself to any pens I wanted and, and I could take them with me if I wanted as well. So, uh, 
I guess my uh, opposite ends of the scale are maybe not understanding what their customers need from Hudson's views versus understanding exactly what their customer means from Singapore Airlines. Well said. Mike Volkoff, you've been able to think of something that's uh, under your skin, or are you still in blissful uh, state from your meditations today? Um, I'm in blissful state. I'm looking forward to a great year, and uh, can't, I, I can just imagine the compliance officer comedy. I think uh, we, we all could come up with funny scenarios for that one. Jay Rosen, do you have a rant for us? I certainly do. I wish I could say that I was disappointed that my New England Patriots lost Super Bowl 52 to the Philadelphia Eagles. But when you ring up over 500 yards of offense as a 40-year quarterback, do not punt the ball once and lose the game 41-33, to there really is only one place to lay the blame. And that would be new De- Detroit Lion coach Matt Patricia and Bill, Belichick, Bill Belichick's bend but don't break defense. Sure, special teams had a missed extra point donk off the upright, as well as a field goal attempt that never quite got going after a muff placement. But even adding those four points and playing what if, the Patriots are still down 41-37 to and don't leave themselves enough time to score. For a team that prides itself on situational football, <clears throat> it is surely unexpected that they would lose Super Bowl 52 this way. Another Belichick pearl of wisdom is that most games come down to a handful of plays. Unfortunately, New England did not situationally execute what would have been, which what, excuse me, what would have led to a six Patriots World Championship in the last 17 years. Well, at least Josh McDaniel followed the steps of his mentor, the hoodie Obi Wan Belichick, and decided to leave the Colts at the offer by declining to be the HC of the TIC. Out. Ouch. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.